This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 15th of January 2019, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and its routing ecosystem for anybody working with investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is John, and here is my oh, effervescent co-host springing eternally, Dave. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. <laughs> doing well. We are midway through January. The, uh, the, the shock of, uh, of Christmas and New Year is a distant memory, and we're here to talk about the life cycle of data. What could be better? Uh, I don't know, a longer Christmas, uh, New Year's uh, festivities? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure my liver could take it. Uh, for me, the stomach more, but, well, preferences yeah, vary. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bit of both. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so this is the second part of our, well, two-parter, let's say, on uh, infrastructure and data life cycles. Last episode, last topic episode, so not the last news episode, the one before that. We talked about infrastructures. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, predominantly, Dave is going to deep dive into data life cycles. Indeed. uh, Tell me, Dave, what's a data life cycle? Is it recycling or...? The interesting thing is that there is no real... There's no real concrete definition <laughs> of what a data life cycle even is. Oh, that matches very well um, with the data lake concept, right? Because everybody it, has their own definition of that as well. Exactly. Is exactly. Do you have lots of little data lakes or one big data lake? Anyway, so it, it's very, very similar in that respect. Um, I mean, there there will be some links in the show notes where we point to a couple of different articles, each of which are interesting or useful in their own different way. Um, but essentially, they 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 each have very different ideas about what a data life cycle is. Um, they they sort of vary between uh, the, the the simplest one has just four steps um, or four phases. Um, the the most complex one has nine phases, mm-hmm. and actually, the one with nine there are some other steps that are brought up in the other ones that aren't present. <laughs> so potentially, you could you could have a maybe not an infinite number of steps or uh-huh. phases, but you, you could get very, very um, segmented, I guess. No, yeah, it's not yeah. quite the right word. But you could get very, very granular, um, granular excellent word, yeah. on, uh, on, on sort of how you break this down. So, so um, before you go, we go deep into these phases, are you, should I think of these that there's one that's right and the other ones are wrong, rubbish, or is it all dependent on your situation, or are they all I right? I think, yeah, I think I think some of it is is situational. Mm-hmm. I think some of it, um, I mean, some of this will have um, leanings back into what an organisation does anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this this isn't necessarily. Um, a completely new thing to to most organisations. They almost certainly will already have some form of uh, idea of the life cycle of data. It's just that when you're talking about this uh, with big data, um, the fact that the data itself is big, it you know yeah. introduces a whole different set of complexities inside yeah, uh, yeah. it. So you're yeah, kind of referring think- to the the old documents that they were the paper trail that they had in the offices already, which now yep. gets bigger. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, Less and easy also, to manage. <laughs> it, well, yeah, that that is certainly true. But also, it seems to like a lot of um, organisations sort of have have this different sort of view of where where the data life cycle starts and ends. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, there's there's one from uh, a great named website. It's not one I'm familiar with. I don't know if the rest <laughs> of the website is any good. But Pink Elephant Asia. <laughs> 
Yes, really. Um, has uh, a post on the big data lifecycle explained, and actually, there they 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 have the the longest of the uh, the life yeah, cycles nine at step. nine steps, um, and they actually start the the data big data lifecycle with business case evaluation, mm-hmm. um, which I I wouldn't have traditionally thought of that as being part necessarily of the data lifecycle. But, it's the planning phase, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. It kind of now it's been brought to my attention. It does kind of make sense, yeah, yeah, yeah. as you say. You know, it, it's that initial planning phase. Does it even make you know? Does it even make sense for us to collect any of this data? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and before it, yeah, go ahead. Uh, before they sort of even begin that process, make sure that they're they're sort of understanding all their thoughts are sound. Yeah, and I can imagine that when you're developing a business case and developing an architecture around that business case. Uh, having the data migration, data transformation, data handling steps defined as well will also influence your architecture. Because if you need to do, as I see, for example, data cleansing in there, well, you'll need a tool set to do that for you. So it will yeah. also feed back into your architecture, I'm assuming. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, so the, the, the next... The next stage that's sort of uh, mentioned here is the sort of data identification. Um, so this Elephant Asia article is probably probably one of the most granular yeah. of the uh, of the different articles, and they've split that section out separately to actually just work out, um, you know, go through the process of working out what do we have already, uh, what information would we need to get to either you know add a new data source in or enrich the data that we already have in order to get or in order to try and get the insights that we're we're looking to achieve. What's the cost of you know of getting that data you know the um the whole process of just identifying what we actually need to make this use case work mm-hmm. so it's to me that sort of i kind of feel that really that could be collapsed either into the previous phase mm-hmm. of the sort of the initial business case evaluation because I kind of think that if you're if you're looking at evaluating a business case, you'd kind of have to have an idea about what the data is that you're generating for that business case. I don't know. I think yeah. I would think that makes sense, but yeah, I was going to say something, but I'm now pre uh, looking uh, at the third step, which is going to touch on in a minute, and mm-hmm. I see it being collapsed into that one, but not the first one because it's a different person that's going to do this. Because the first one is yeah. the enterprise architect, mostly yeah. and the business people. The data mm-hmm. identification I see more for data engineer, and that's a different kind of role. But yeah. if you look at number three, that yeah. also feels very data engineering. Uh, um, Agreed. Ish. Agreed. Agreed. And maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe that's the right kind of distinction. Look at who is likely to be doing the roles, yep. and then you know that that's the likely sort of consolidation point. But anyway, you are you uh, jumping ahead there Sorry. to <laughs> step three? No, no, it's all good. Um, data acquisition and filtering. So here we go from the data identification phase to actually acquiring this data, uh, and that could be. Um, data sources you know within the company outside the organization um, and they they also sort of add filtering into this step and I, I'm a sort of data filtering data cleansing people sort of call these things different um, different terms they actually refer to data cleansing however sort of further on down the line so here 
they're specifically talking about filtering out um, corrupt data mm-hmm. and data that's uh, not required for the particular analysis. Now, mm. I would typically, I don't know what your feelings are on this, but I'm, I'm still very much of the mindset of, and unless you are significantly constrained in some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form, collect all the data. Yeah. Um, you can, you know, have metrics around the data, or you can sort of say, you know, I don't think these, you know, fields or you know parameters or whatever can necessarily be trusted, or um, we don't need this bit yet. Uh, but the it, it costs so much. Uh, in time, in effort, in understanding, uh, in, even in, in processing, to actually collect the data in the first place, that to collect it and then sort of pre-filter it and throw it away kind of feels like it's at odds with um, sort of the, the the whole kind of big data uh, movement. And so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards, I think maybe you should be, a little bit careful before you start throwing data away at this early stage. Um, yeah, because it's an early stage here. And if uh, we've talked about the data lake concepts of having a raw landing so- uh, zone first and then a refined zone and a consumption zone, this very much feels like what comes into that first landing zone in your data lake. Yep. And uh, the first thing about filtering out corrupt data, well, data is never corrupt when it has landed. I mean, corrupt data means it didn't get in, only half of the package get in, stuff like that, which means it never gets in there in the first place, so you don't have to filter it out either. If corrupt data means that the source had invalid data and that invalid data got Mm. into your data lake, that is still insight. If you want to do preventive maintenance stuff, that gives you information about how bad the source was and things like that, so that is still good information. If it's really talking about corrupt data where the... Uh, I don't know, text fields were converted to integers and now you have garbage. Uh, That's a bug in your programming. That is not data, but it's not filtering. (laughs) Now for the second point, point. you say non-necessary data. I do have two exceptions to your excellent reasoning. (laughs) Mm -hmm. First one is, excuse me, is the, sometimes you are not allowed to store some data. Yeah, 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 data, stuff like that. You have to get that out at the first step. So that's definitely something that's possible. The second one is a bit more convoluted, perhaps, and that's when the same data comes in different shapes. If, for mm-hmm. instance, you're doing a facial recognition, I can store the video capture, but yep. visual recognition happens by making a... Uh, you serialize information in the, in the image. You kind of see the coordinates of the eyes, nose, mouth, the triangle, and that's what's being used to recognize a face, and that gives you a kind of a... call it a hash, for, for lack of a better word, and you can mm-hmm. just compare these hashes to see if it's the same person or not. Do you have to uh, store both the hash and the image while both are dependent or one can be made from the other? So in this case, by not storing both, you potentially are not losing information, but it Mm -hmm. does put the onus on you that you are able to regenerate that other part in the exact same way, which may be a problem. So a bit convoluted. Yeah. No, no, no. It's a good point. I mean, we we see a very similar sort of pattern in things like cybersecurity, for example, mm-hmm. where maybe you know you would store um, raw PCAP data, which mm-hmm. is incredibly rich, incredibly granular, but also huge. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you know you can extract you know flow-based data, DNS-based data, all those sorts of things as uh, data sources from that, mm-hmm. but 
you know, often organizations will want to try and keep a buffer of yeah. that um, that like raw PCAP right? data exactly for forensics. And it's, you know, it's similar with a lot of, especially very bulky data sources. You want to decide um, what the return on investment is it is for storing it. You know, mm. what's the... Yeah. What's the potential use case that might uh, might you know have you realise that actually you need to go back and re- revisit that data? So, for example, on your on your facial recognition um, sort of uh, data source, you know, for the most part, once you've done that initial facial facial recognition um, use case, as you say, you've got those hashes for want mm-hmm. of a better word. Um, you know, you don't necessarily need the video. Well, unless you decide that. You want to then, um, you know, do something else with the video. You want to identify not just the not just the hashes, but maybe the um, some of the other metadata. So, you know, were people going yep. into the building or coming out of the building? You know, all the, those sorts of things, rather than just yes, I've I've seen this person. Yep. So again, it's kind of if you can afford to keep the the data, and if you have sort of some sort of reasoning that you think this data may come in handy for other things in the future um you know maybe you don't just want to do facial recognition on humans maybe you want to see how many i don't know cats and dogs were walking past your building i don't know well or just not facial recognition but if is that person wearing uh, uh, carrying a laptop or not yeah or or have they got a have they got a rucksack or a briefcase capable of you know, yeah. there's all kinds of things that yeah. that uh, that could be done. I think it's a difference between derivation versus aggregation. If you're aggregating yeah. your data, you're losing granularity, and yeah. that should be bad. If you der- if you have derivative data, that's really 100% derivative. I've got a column that says one, I've got a column that says two, and a column that says sum of one and two. Well, mm-hmm. you can remove that third column because that's never yeah. going to change. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, you have to really look for those uh, when when that's really the case. Uh, the only thing about the images is this is a, a real use case. So I know uh, a company that actually is doing this, and the reason that they're not keeping the images is the size of the images. Uh, video data is very, very large compared yeah. to those serialized hashes that they're building from the images that yeah, in their stream what they're doing. But it's a very, I'm not going to say built for purpose, but very n- narrowly defined use case. So they mm-hmm. will never do anything more than that because it's privacy data. Images cannot be stored longer than... I don't know, a couple of seconds anyway. It's really a mm-hmm. take, derive your information from it and forget. So for their case, it really made sense not to store the, the image data. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so that was that was the third stage, uh, data acquisition and filtering. The fourth stage in this article is data extraction. Um, and here they're primarily talking about Essentially, reworking the data into some format that is uh, more easily consumed by the the big data tooling um, for it to process and analyze it. So, the the simplest example I can think of this is uh, something like taking you know some sort of CSV information and converting converting it into ORC file. Yeah. I mean, yes, you can you can parse CSVs with a whole bunch of tools. But typically, if you put it in some sort of optimized storage format that has things like um, compression, stats, and all these kind of wonderful things, uh, indexing, then that gives you a far faster um, and better way to generally look at that sort of form of data. Can you think of any other kinds of data extraction methods? Uh, Well, the thing I have with this topic is that um, it's both in the right place and the wrong place. 
Because <laughs> you'll do data extraction in different stages in your, your business use cases. Uh, when the data comes in and moves from the raw to the exploration or uh, refinement mm-hmm. zone, mm-hmm. you will do a kind of extraction because you have to remove, anonymize, pseudonymize, things like that. But once the data scientists start working with their statistics and machine learning tools on that data, there will be many, many steps of data extraction happening. Therefore, every use case will have its different uh, demands on the data. So this is one which I don't see has a specific place at this point already, and not only at this point. Yeah. Talking about doing it at this point in the ingestion, you're right when you say that going to ORC or a more close to the tool uh, optimized version of your data representation, that will make it faster. However, I would counter that in this stage of your business flow, of your, your workflow, you're more looking at flexibility and different ways of accessing that data. And converting a petabyte of CSV files to ORC, that'll take a while. And if you're yep. not entirely certain that that's what you want, but it's just like, try this, try that, try here, I would actually suggest to people, don't go to ORC just yet. Do the serialization surveys of Hive to do it on the fly. Yes, your queries will be slower, but changing your query will be much faster. And it's really dependent on where you are in your use case there. If you're doing still that, let's see what I could do with this data versus I have done that. And now this is what I want to put into a a production workflow. The second part, yes, obviously go to optimization as much as possible. Yeah. No, no. All very, very good points. I think one of the ones that you you touched on there is actually, um, and we're switching uh, slightly to the, there's a, a Bloomberg article, again, link in the show notes, that talks about the fact that actually the term life cycle that we use here isn't actually really all that accurate because data doesn't kind of reproduce or recycle itself. Um, and they so they actually use the term data life history, um, but that's not really a very familiar term for most yeah. people. The life history is actually... Uh, used to describe the phases of growth in an organism like a butterfly. But again, data is kind of different to that as well. So that's why we use this the, this term data lifecycle, even though it's not actually a, a, that great a fit. Now, the, the thing that uh, you pointed out is actually this isn't just like my data goes from step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, step six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, thirty, however many steps you you end up having. Um, it data goes round and round through these phases, you know, from uh, this article is talking about data synthesis and data maintenance, and then back to synthesis again. And you know, there's some of the you know you need to make sure you're not thinking of this in a completely uh, rigid way. context exactly you know this isn't necessarily purely sequential some of the things almost certainly mm-hmm. are um Don't but some of the things that exactly some of these some of these um kind of phases will be coming back again and again throughout the life cycle um of any given use case so i think that that's a that's a nice point okay so let us move on to step five. So we're switching, switching back now for those following at home to the <laughs> pink elephantasia. You want uh, to say document. that name again, didn't you? I did. I really <laughs> did. I, I'm going to see if I can get it a few more times in before the end of the recording. Um, so data validation and cleansing is step five here. So 
This is different to the filtering phase that happens earlier. Um, and this is sort of seems to be more targeted um, towards data that is, um, you know, was acquired correctly. So, you know, your example of um, yeah. you know, something that should have been a string comes in as an integer. It's not that sort of thing. It's something that, you know, um, should have been an integer, is an integer, but the the value that's in there is is out of range. Now, as you quite rightly pointed out, that actually might be information in itself. That might be information that um, the one of the source systems is having some sort of issue um, and is actually putting out of range values in, which may itself be something that is worth knowing about. Um, but this is talking about having a set of a set of rules in place, um, and we we talked a little bit on the the previous news episode about um, sort of um, AI based systems. Uh, I'm using air quotes here, which is great radio. <laughs> um, um, AI based systems that will do some form of of this sort of validation and cleansing based on. Um, rules or tool sets that have been it have it been sort of trained on anyway so there's there's definitely a possibility for some of that but really this is um in many cases just a a, a standard piece of you know good business practice to ensure that the the data that you're looking at actually makes some form of sense yep. if you've got like all these things the data is the most important part of this whole thing and you've got garbage coming in you'll definitely have garbage coming out so and if you're a recycling plant that's great yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah uh, i think a bit it's a bit sad that they're using the word corrupt in both cases here because in the yeah, first one it's yeah. really binary corruption let's say while mm. this, this one is more of the uh, as you said it must make sense it means it's insight based it's an anal analytical based corruption yeah and yep. Where the first one, when I talked about your landing zone, that's going to be a one-off. Data comes in, you need to make sure that your texts, var charts are still var charts, your binaries are still, the, the bytes are still the same size and stuff. Once that's done, it's done. Yep. This step, on the other hand, is much more um, cyclical, much more iterative, let's say, because yep. for use yep. case one, I only want to look at stuff that's between these two boundaries. And all of the rest, by definition, then becomes air quotes, <laughs> corrupt. <laughs> For another use case, that might be different. Um, this is more talking about, yes, yeah, sometimes it's bad data in there, but as you said as well, and I, I reiterated, that could be information in itself again. But I think yep. it's more about the business rules around the specific use case here. Yeah, What data do you want to consider accurate and not? Because I think here also gets the into the point of how accurate is accurate enough? Yeah, if you're yeah, doing yeah. cancer research, you want to be bleeping certain when you tell somebody he has cancer. Yeah. Uh, if you're doing, I don't know, sentiment analysis on Twitter feeds, um, <laughs> I mean, it's dark, it's alchemy anyway. So if you get kind yeah. of in the ballpark, you should be happy again. So I, I see this validation. That's I think validation. There's a very good word, and the cleansing mm -hmm. is a result of your validation to look at yeah. your use case. What do I see? What do I accept as unbiased enough, as uh, correct enough uh, to do to use in my my use case? Yeah, I think something else um, that we we talked about sometimes some of these steps being cyclical. Uh, or cyclical. Um, 
one of the examples of that might be uh, when you're acquiring a new data source say say you're acquiring some sort of some sort of sensor data from an industrial um, device mm-hmm. you're probably getting a whole bunch of different fields for each each event that comes through now you may only be interested in a handful of those for the particular use case that you're looking at in all, the majority of cases therefore you will only do the the validation the cleansing mm-hmm. the the filtering yeah, on those fields that you're interested in for your particular use case one of the the things about this is often you'll need to have some method of tagging the data that you know this this has been done on these fields mm-hmm. to you know for this use case or something along those kind of lines so that you know, the next person that comes along uh, with another use case that also requires data from that particular system um, doesn't just blindly assume, oh, we've already got this data source. Great, this is all fine. I can just pull straight from this and shortcut a whole bunch of work. Not necessarily true. So I think that's that's something else that almost always, unless a data source is very, very simple, you're never going to go through that validation and cleansing and filtering process for all of the fields in that data source. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And following on from that, actually, reading these things, you might get the impression that the goal here is to reduce your data set, to make it smaller, have a smaller footprint. As you say, doing these steps, you will probably, should probably generate metadata on top of your data. So quite possibly the result of these steps is not shrinking, but making your data set bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I would I would certainly expect that. Yeah. Well, not always, but don't be surprised if that happens. It's definitely yeah. not wrong if that happens. That might yeah. be, and as you said, very well should be, uh, the normal way of working there. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And that's okay. where all the uh, data governance and uh, life cycle things, uh, sorry, not life cycles, uh, lineage uh, comes in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so if we look at the next phase here, we've got uh, phase six, which is data aggregation and representation. Um, so here we're talking about the fact that um, data could be spread across multiple different data sets. So you may want to start joining data um, together um, from these multiple different sources Um and in some cases, you may actually want to start aggregating data mm-hmm. so you're not looking at the um, the incredibly granular data. You're looking at sort of slightly aggregated data to speed up that analysis process. Um, you might have data, for example, that has is coming in at uh, different frequencies. You know, if you've got some data that's coming in every millisecond and yep. some other data that's coming in you know every few minutes you're going to need to perform some sort of um uh aggregation and representation work there to make sure that the data that you're looking at actually makes sense yeah yeah sometimes you need to aggregate before you can actually work with the data because if yeah. you have sensor data coming in any millisecond and there's a lot of jitter on there you yeah, should only yeah. have a business rule fire on the average over X uh, number of events, exactly uh, once exactly every right, minute yeah. or something like that, because the the again, if you if you're working with time series data, the most accurate value will be the one that has the largest window in history. Yep, and it's also the the most wrong version to do alerting <laughs> on. <laughs> so you have to yeah. be, go ahead. 
No, no, I was going to say that's a that's an, an excellent point because the the yeah the the larger the window, the more inaccurate or the more accurate depending on your point of view. So it, it's all about getting that window um, to a, a relevant size that that makes sense for you and for your use case and what you're trying to achieve with it. Yeah. You need to remember that a lot of these. Uh, especially um, when we're talking about sort of uh, manufacturing or industrial or sort of IoT type um, use cases, you're getting data from sensors that weren't really designed for yep. this. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, for example, SCADA systems or whatever like that, they've got very expensive, very proprietary stuff plugged into them that does all of that sort of, oh, I'm going to filter this out and I'm going to aggregate this up because I know that the the sort of the readings that I, the raw readings I get from the sensors are, quote, you know, not garbage, but they're, they're sort of, they have, as you say, a lot of jitter in them. They have a lot of um, characteristics of the data that if you were to just absorb that as raw and just take that as gospel, you'd be getting, you'd be doing yourself a disservice. You'd be sort of potentially... Um, invalidating you know all the hard work you've done up to this point yeah yeah i always compare that to the hard disks which is a maybe a bit of a stretch but if you would take the granular detailed data on the quality of your hard disk then every hard disk sold in this world is broken because they all <laughs> leave the factory with at least a couple of bad sectors and that's why i have the spare sectors on there and that's why your smart testing the testing of your hard disks doesn't give you every single bad sector now it tells you when you have too many bad sectors well, and it also tells you, exactly, but it also tells you the rate of change. You know, if you've just got two or three bad sectors and you've had two or three bad sectors forever, that's fine. If you had two, then you have five, then you have ten, then you have a hundred. With ever-shortening windows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, then it's probably time it's to analysis, test right? that back up. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, indeed. Uh, one thing I'd want to add in this little section is uh, we're talking about aggregation, joining, stuff like that. And before mm-hmm. we said, yeah, but this will lose data, this will uh, lose your granularity and lose you maybe insight for other use cases. Uh, the thing here is is that you're going to duplicate your data. Now, you're not yeah. going to duplicate it bit per bit, per bit, but the data set that you landed in the first couple of steps, that should be immutable. Once your first corruption steps yeah. there have been done, yeah, that yeah, data yeah. sits and doesn't go away ever unless you go bankrupt or you have to clean it up due to legal requirements, stuff like that. But that data should be immutable, so it's your golden truth. You can always, whatever analysis happens down the line, you can go back to the source to say, yeah, but this is where it came from. See, I'm right or wrong, (laughs) case maybe. Exactly. Regulatory compliance is a huge piece of this as well. (laughs) And in fact, this is one of the reasons why um, so many organizations are still able to keep um, data, even with the sort of increasing focus on privacy, is regulatory compliance. Yeah. Um, they need to be able to go back to that that golden source of truth to be able to prove that you know yes, the reason that we got this result is you know we go back to our source data. This is what happened to it, and this is the the end result, and it still matches. Yeah, and if for some reason that incoming data was wrong, then you can pass the buck to the data source. Exactly. Source system, <laughs> sort it out. <laughs> so you're going to be duplicating data. Here it means uh, making your data footprint larger. Again. Um, yep. But you can at this point look at dynamic ways of doing that, avoiding mm-hmm. duplication by doing dynamic masking, dynamic access control, yeah. where you have still that yeah. one immutable source, but then through materialized views or exactly. range of policies, 
avoid the duplication because we're still in the first steps. This is not yet data being prepared for your end use cases. This is still the the next step. You'll see the data scientists starting to work on the data to, to, to find insights. A bit of a bingo buzzword bingo there. Uh, but <laughs> you don't want to start creating petabytes and petabytes of data sets just because you're trying things out. Again, mm. as I said before, optimization is great once you have your pipeline in play. But if you're still doing the exploration steps, leveraging yeah, all that yeah, kind yeah. of dynamics will make your query slower because everything that's dynamic means there's clock cycles being spent modifying your, your view of the data. Mm-hmm. But it gives you a lot more flexibility when you do that query just a little bit different. You don't have to rebuild that entire data set again. Absolutely. And you kind of have to choose between working on a subset of the data that makes it possible to do the optimization steps every single time or if mm-hmm. you need to work on the entire data, look at uh, tools that allow you to do that dynamic um, duplicating, and it's a bad word, I shouldn't say duplicating, but dynamic, creating di- different views dynamically without actually yep. having to write more bytes, which is both cheaper. And in the end, if you're doing a lot of iterations, faster. Yeah, 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 definitely. Very good points. All right. So that was uh, step six or phase six. We're now going on to phase seven, the data analysis phase, which, as Ion mentioned, is really where you actually, this is the first time that they're actually starting to look at the data <laughs> with the use case in mind, which exactly. seems a bit crazy. But it, again, garbage in, garbage out. Data is the most important thing. If you can't get the data right, then everything else is 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 fail. Mm-hmm. So now we've we've got the data right we can actually start looking at it and the analysis could be as simple as is this value 1 or 0 or it could be you know incredibly more complicated but at this point you're now starting to with the use case in mind what does the data tell us does it tell us what you know can we can we predict things can we um, can we directly sort of react from the data or whatever it might be, whatever the use case is? And the fun thing is that this is usually the step where people start their big data use case. If you're doing the business <laughs> case analysis, then this is where they start. We need to do the emotion detection on Twitter feeds. And if they then start programming and deploying and architecting away and doing their stuff, they've missed all those previous steps and they yeah. will have to go back to the drawing board because they'll figure out that, oh, shit, yeah, but this data, where does it come from? And is it is it yeah. good? Is it is it validated? So this is the, the, the good part of having something like this, a, a kind of flow of step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, the, the first six maybe weren't very sexy, weren't very, this is what <laughs> I want to spend the rest of my life doing. No, the seven and the eight and nine are the things where the real, as it says here, the real actual value of data projects will be generated. That's what I want to spend my time in. Sure. I I want to build my living room first, and then I'll to think about things like foundations and stuff. That's that always yeah. works out well. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, and it, it exactly right. So the the whole point here is that this may be, as, as you said, this may be the sexy bit, but again, if you don't get the fundamentals right, then this this all comes crashing down. Mm-hmm. And to your point earlier, people that start at this phase take a lot lot longer to complete than people that actually think about this in a logical way start off at the beginning and work their way through it's it's always more difficult more time consuming and more expensive to retrofit all of that stuff in afterwards than it is to think about it from the beginning because you end up 
reworking whatever you thought you knew because the real world never lines up with that. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's fine to start your ideation at this point. That's my mm-hmm. word of the day. Uh, <laughs> but you should, before you then actually start doing stuff, take those steps back to put a put the foundation in there. I mean, I'm not saying you have to start every business case with step one uh, data identification. No, I understand. You, you need to have the insight of what you want to do with the stuff before you can actually fill in those previous steps as well. But before you really go live with your deployments, make sure you, you've gone back to the uh, previous steps there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so th- it's the difference between, I wonder if this works, you know, half a day or a day of hacking about maybe loading in some some ad hoc data mm-hmm. fiddling around in in you know in in the command line or in a notebook stuff. or something like that prototyping stuff like that. oh wow that's really cool it does work i can now take this to someone and say hey look what i found with just you know a couple of days of fiddling around with some data how about we turn this into something real yeah. and that's when the whole big process yeah get a budget get all this stuff and you know acquire the data in real time rather than just kind of copying a csv file from somewhere random (laughs) so yeah there's absolutely nothing wrong with diving in at this step for a bit of prototyping a bit of oh i wonder if this has you know makes any sense or works at all that's absolutely cool but just don't start off at this and expecting that to be your production thing it ain't gonna work that way yeah. And also, this is one of the steps I think is going to be the most cyclic and the most, uh, uh, should I say, yeah. parallel, because uh, you'll have different data analysis for different use cases working side by oh, side yeah. at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. This is where the first steps you could really say, okay, a certain source delivers data and goes through this pipeline. When you reach this point, you'll have a bifurcation, I think that's the word, of that mm-hmm. data stream going into wildly diverging paths for different use cases. Yeah. And in fact, as as you were saying earlier, the, at the aggregation representation phase, uh, which is the previous phase, phase six, this is where, yes, you, you might sort of go through fa- different phases. You might not immediately land stuff into ORC because you might need to rework it later mm-hmm. or you might need to you know, use different materialized views or... Once you know, the, the definitely phases phases six and seven. I can see multiple iterations between these phases, and them sort of reinforcing uh, and sort of getting closer to the the sort of the target or the goal uh, by bouncing back through these two yeah. phases. Certainly, quite significantly. Yeah, but I think the end result, if I'm looking at the next steps, the end result of this step should be an optimized data, smart yes. data set, data source. But before yep. you reach that point, you'll have a lot of iteration going on and flexibility there. So I'll have very yep. much appreciated always. Indeed, indeed. And so the next phase, one of my favorites here, <laughs> data visualization. <laughs> yes. Um, so generating a whole load of things and showing a big table of results saying, look, look, it works. That's great and all, um, but if you're the only person that can read that entire table and that's and job security, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or it's it's job insecurity because nobody knows what on earth you're yeah. on about. Um, so being able to visualize that um, is incredibly important. There are a whole bunch of different visualization techniques and tools and all sorts of wonderful stuff, um, but it can just be as simple as you know a, a, a chart, a graph, a heat map you know something that actually shows all of this hard work means this mm-hmm. and it, again th- this is not the end state this is just 
sort of being able to communicate what you have found to a wider audience, you know, to, to people that maybe aren't as directly plugged into maybe the, the, the underlying tech or the business, uh, the sort of the use case that you're developing, or it's being able to show other people that are not in your brain <laughs> exactly what you've been doing and what this means to the organization. Uh, the one thing I want to add here is that uh, data visualization, people are visual, uh, visual beings, so we always think mm-hmm. about reporting, self-service behind things like that, and that's totally valid. But there's different kinds of visualization, which I think also fit this category, and that's any kind of consuming entity, maybe a person or an automated process, needs a representation of your analysis that is useful mm-hmm. for its kind of eyes. And to make it a bit more concrete, perhaps, uh, the (laughs) output of whatever you're doing may be a REST API that is being consumed by your clients, your customers, or other third-party stuff, or whatever. Having a clearly defined uh, REST API is also a kind of data visualization at that point, because you you then transform the data, which is clear for you, into something, representation that's clear for that consuming entity, be it a person or an automated project, uh, program, thing. Thing. Yeah, thing, that's the... (laughs) (laughs) All right, so that's the visualization step. And going on the next and final step, at least in this uh, example of a data lifecycle, is uh, step nine, utilization of analysis results. So this is sort of leading into the the phase that you were talking about, making the data right for the eyes that are going to view it. I like that, uh, uh, that method of describing it. So you've got data, great. Showing a graph, awesome. Uh, can you plug this into something that will then actually, you know, react and respond to whatever it is that you're um, whatever it is you're feeding it if that's part of that use case so if if you can spot fraud can you stop fraud you know can you predict fraud before it happens based on whatever it is you're doing mm-hmm. all those kind of use cases basically making that data now work for you as yeah. i am um, guilty of saying multiple times <laughs> big data should either be saving you money or making you money no it's not the new oil stop <laughs> saying that um preferably both of those things at the same time and this is this is the sort of the, the pinnacle of that in my in my view and the fun thing is that not always, but quite often, this actually results in creating new data, which you can plug into step one again and go to the whole thing again. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and other people can then consume in their step one as well. Exactly. That's what I mean. I, on the one hand, you have the uh, feedback reinforcement loop you should have built in. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was meaning what you said, uh, the just this is, this is so, your end is somebody else beginning. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So that's that's the um, that's the end of the sort of the phases on uh, Pink Elephant Asia. <laughs> yes. yes, I managed to say it again. Um, for anyone counting alongside, um, please tweet how many times I say Pink Elephant Asia, um, and uh, Jon will give you a special prize of a thank you. Um, uh, oh, that's very special. <laughs> I thank the people very, very, very little. That's uh, one of my flaws, I must admit. So that's that's the end of the Pink Elephant Asia article, but that's yeah. not necessarily the end of the phases of a data lifecycle. If you remember the um, the sort of digression earlier, what I was talking about, you know, data lifecycle might not actually make sense. 
uh, depending on how you view it. Um, if we look at the, the Bloomberg, Bloomberg article, which is actually uh, an article that was created um, for information management, and it was written by Malcolm Chisholm, what he actually talks about is there's actually... Um, you know, so they talk about a couple of phases. So they talk about the data capture phase, which is quite similar to what we've already men- mentioned. The data maintenance phase, which kind of aggregates some of the stuff that we've already mentioned. The data synthesis phase, which again is a little bit of Analysis. something we've already talked about. Data usage, that's phase four there. Data publication, again, you know, that's broadly what we've been talking about most recently. But then they actually bring in two additional phases. So beyond the uh, the, the first nine phases that elephant, Pink Elephantasia talk about. <laughs> Bing! Um, <laughs> Bing! <laughs> Counter increment. Um, you've got uh, phase six in the Bloomberg article is data archival. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the the kind of interesting thing here is when we talked about this on our previous topic episode, we were basically suggesting that data archive should almost happen at the very beginning. But actually, as you just mentioned, the, the data that the, that is output is also could also be someone else's input that input will also need to be archived as well for uh, for val- validation at a later date um, and for potential u- use in a wide variety of other use cases, hopefully. So, you know, this sort of thing is very, very much um, the sort of the, the fully, fully cyclical nature of the data. Um, but there is actually a, a sort of a counter to that, which is the, the seventh step in this article, and before I go on to that, anything else do you think around uh, the data archival phase? I uh, just want to add that it is one of the examples of be- it being not sequential because you have data car- archival steps on different places there. I mean, when mm-hmm. your, data, your first data comes in, you've done your first corruption checks. Probably yep. you have to archive stuff there to get that uh, golden truth never never be lost. I mean, put it on mm-hmm. tape for all I care. <laughs> but the end result will also need data archival. So there's different places in the, the previous lifecycle steps where the data archival does become uh, important, I think. And yep. obviously, this should also plug into your the disaster recovery um, methods you want to deploy. Oh yes, yeah, yeah very should, much uh, so. Be able to reinforce them each other. Yep, yep. Good points. So the the seventh and final stage of the uh, the data lifecycle in this Bloomberg article is data purging, mm-hmm. and this really is the end of the uh, the life of this particular piece of data, uh, and this is. Um, the ability to actually get rid of that particular piece of data. Um, often, as you we've discussed earlier, this is for privacy reasons or regulatory reasons where you, know, you are required to keep data for this period of time, but no longer than this period of time or whatever it might be. Or it could just be um, we, we just can't afford to store all yep. of the data all the time, so we need to set our own boundaries of the the life cycle the the what's the return on investment for continuing to keep this data um and de- once you've determined that you can determine what your data purging rules are yeah and actually the data purging i think should bookend your entire life cycle because you should set your data retention policies when the data comes in and enforce them at the end yeah 
So yeah. this should, again, not a sequential thing, not something you should do after after all of the hard work is done and millions of dollars are ro- rolling in. Oh, we have to start thinking about retention periods now. No, probably when you're starting to define what data you need, where it's coming from, what the legislation around the data set is, that's when you have to make sure your tools allow you to set your retention periods there so that you don't have to worry about it anymore. Just do spot checks, uh, auditing, stuff like that to make sure that it actually happens. But mm-hmm. the the hard work, I think, should happen at the start of the whole cycle, the, the defining, yeah. the decide, making the, the decisions of what makes sense to keep and not keep, and what are you allowed to keep and not keep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, as as we said earlier, doing the hard work up front will make the latter stages mm-hmm. so much easier. Again, mm-hmm. if you've got to go and try and retrofit all of that afterwards, yeah, you're in for a, a, a tough time. And you have to think about this one for every time you make an aggregation as well, because uh, the whole idea about uh, PII information, uh, personal identifiable information, is that data set one may be neutral, data set two may be neutral, but putting them together, now you get into uh, identification problems because that becomes a data set that actually allows you to trace someone. Well, yeah. While the first two may not have any legal reasons to be dest- destroyed, the joining of the two, well, that data set may have legal requirements to be destroyed within X amount of time. And in that case, do I need to also purge the origina- originating data sets or only the, uh, the aggregative, aggreg- aggregative one? Uh, mm-hmm. It's really, it, it's not easy. It's not one plus one is two. It's, uh, you have to think real hard on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. So, I mean, there's a, you brought up some good points around making sure that, um, at the point that you ingest the data, you have to understand what its retention policy is. And so skipping to a different article now, there's a Hortonworks article, um, not too old, but uh, it, it's from uh, November um, 2017. So it's a little bit vintage. Um, but this is talking about the uh, the data lifecycle, although slightly confusingly, it mentions the four stages that take data from cradle to grave, and then it lists five. <laughs> so, um, but the 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 new um, the new phase that uh, is is mentioned here is actually creation. So they talk about the the data lifecycle, the the creation phase, which for most um, yeah a lot of things would be a source system. Um, or you know, and how do you connect to that source system? So some of that is is taken care of, I guess, in the uh, um, the data collection sort of phase. But this actually breaks out data creation as a separate part, which I, you know does make sense. It is most cases though out of scope for um, what you're doing within a big data framework. Although if the creation of the data is that is the output from and something else, exactly. then it is perfectly in, um, you know, perfectly in, in yeah. scope. Yeah, you should see creation not just as coming into existence, but coming into your scope, starting yeah. to suddenly appearing in your boundary. That's when the data yeah. get created for you. So, um, I mean, a, a, a source that creates data will have probably gone through the whole data lifecycle steps on their end before it pushes that data to you where it becomes your first step. Indeed, indeed. So that's uh, there's uh, another article that uh, we're r- running a little bit long now, um, so I'll, I'll summarize it very quickly as the data lifecycle only has four phases, acquisition, awareness, analytics, governance. 
I mean, bro- broadly, broadly correct, but there's a whole load of nuance that you miss on that. Yeah. What I would, however, say is that uh, this article um, by Kurt Cagle, um, who is a contributing writer for Forbes magazine and Cognitive World, um, does a really good job of explaining some of the background around data lifecycle, some of the background around some of the things that have really changed um, it, how data has been consumed. So it's it's not very good from a going from step one to step two to step three kind of perspective, but it's quite a good article if if you're new to this space and you don't really understand why this is such a big thing. Um, it's quite a good article to have a sit down with a coffee and have a read through. It's yeah. uh, quite nice for that. For me, there's two big pluses on this article. One is uh, the fact that uh, Kurt is wearing a top hat. Kudos. <laughs> and the second one is the graphic at the top of the article. It really shows you that it's not a sequential, but a cyclical nature of the whole thing. Yep. So that representation really sets a good tone when you start digging into this thing. Also, Kurt has an awesome beard. So top hat and beard. <laughs> I approve. But no monocle, so there's room for improvement there. Yep, maybe that's that's on the future future <laughs> article. We'll have to take a look. Well, this is so, from yeah, 2015, that, so maybe have it. <laughs> yeah, maybe we could send him one. Um, so I, I think these are these are four different articles, four different views on data lifecycle. You know, as, as we mentioned towards the beginning, or as, as I kind of uh, suggested, none of these are wrong or right, mm. and. You know, you will you will have to decide for yourself and for your organisation. You know, which of these steps you know makes sense to break out to something, uh, you know, something separate or something discrete. Some of these within your organisation may be compressed together. Um, I think Jan's suggestion of look at actually who is going to be doing those roles is an excellent one for thinking. You know, maybe what what you might want to consolidate. Yeah, so um, yeah. But uh, I I think these are these are the kind of things that people don't often consider very early on. They get very excited by maybe the tech and the possibilities mm-hmm. and they dive right in and, you know, yay, but th- there be dragons. And it's really, really important to make sure that you understand some of these kind of fundamentals. Um, it's it's not terribly complex, but there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of things that you'll want to spend the time to, to go through and to understand in, in more depth before you just leap in with acquiring petabytes and petabytes of data and, and expecting that uh, um, it'll all just work out fine. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, looking at this, it's all just common sense, right? Yeah, but as a very good friend of mine likes to say, <laughs> uh, common says, sense isn't all that common. Yeah. So maybe to... Uh, finish this off uh, maybe reach back to the previous episode where we talked about infrastructure things i already mentioned this at the start of this episode when you go through these steps you will invariably change your architecture to accommodate these steps you will have to look at different ways of storing your data moving your data uh, having space for that uh, newly generated metadata so that's where the whole thing ties together right yep very much so that's why you say so. you can't see one without the other. You can't have one team do the infrastructure and then the other guys looking at this and then hope that it all meets in the middle. <laughs> That's not how you how you build a tunnel. No, no. And it, it, again, it, this all comes down to communication. You've got lots of big data is complicated, um, sure, but actually nowhere usually nowhere near as complicated as an organization as a whole. And 
communication is key here. Making sure that everybody knows what you're trying to achieve, making sure that you, you're clear and transparent on you know all of these steps and the phases and, and who's doing what. It's all, again, it's all common sense, but we know that saying. So yeah, I, I hope this has been useful for, for, for our audience. And I hope uh, if, if anyone has any thoughts around this, um, other phases that maybe could do with uh, a bit of light shed on them or whether they think that uh, actually it's all too overblown and complicated and could be simplified down to just uh, just one or two phases. Get the data, do the thing. <laughs> hey, whatever floats your boat, if it works for you. Indeed, indeed, indeed. So, anything else from you? Uh, nope, I think uh, I think we're done. Uh, actually, I, I want to say thank you because uh, at the start of this data lifecycle, it's not something I really spend a lot of time thinking of, but uh, going through this uh, has been very enlightening for me. So, thank you, sir. You're very welcome. Uh, I was going to say, for, for someone that uh, didn't think they knew very much about data lifecycle, you had a lot to say. So, uh, <laughs> I think yeah, we, well. had, uh, we, had a good, we had a good discussion, and uh, I hope our audience uh, also benefits from it as well. So with that, that is about all the time we have for today. Hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms and other feedback until then my name is dave and my name is john and we look forward to talking to you next week see you then